0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Alright, reading from John 14, verses 1 to 7. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Christ is the truth, definitive of the truth. very identity of truth. And this is cause not to be troubled, Jesus says. This truth resolves the troubled heart. This truth provides a secure dwelling place. This truth is not of a human order, but a truth of its own kind, revealed through Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is a person. The truth is the person of Christ. The truth is singular. And it can be equated with the life that Christ gives. And the truth that is Christ, it provides the only access to the Father. There is no other way to come to the Father, Jesus says. Except through the truth that is Christ. We have an alternative picture of truth in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think this is the alternative form of truth, the alternative form of thought, to knowing God. To know God, to know Christ, is to know unadulterated goodness. It's to know the truth directly. But to know the good... On the basis not of Christ, not on the basis of who God is, but on the basis of knowing good and evil, means the good is mixed with the evil. This kind of dualism in which we know the good through the evil, the evil through the good, or we, there's a divide, you know, the body and the soul heaven and earth, it's a kind of way of knowing that is definitive, I think, of human knowing. But the problem is the good versus evil intermixes evil with the good. Paul gives us the psychological form of this kind of dialectic in Romans 7:19. for the good that I want... And I believe he's describing this same basis for knowing. He says, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. That is, the form of human knowing, unlike the form of knowing Christ, splits the person like the knowledge itself. It splits the one that would know in this fashion. So they're pitted against themselves. Paul describes the Jewish problem in the same way, characteristic of the human problem. What is a Jew? Well, a Jew is not a Gentile. What's a Gentile? Well, a Gentile's not a Jew. And he describes this, they're divided by a wall of hostility in Ephesians. There's an enmity contained in law or ordinances or in doing knowledge that, in this way that creates strife Creates a dividing wall of hostility. But he says Christ has broken down this division. That is to know Christ is to know differently. In Ephesians 2, 14 to 17, he himself is our peace. He ends this antagonistic, agonistic way of knowing. He made both groups into one. That is, there's no longer identity through Jew, identity through Gentile. There's identity in Christ. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The hostility, the antagonism is ended. He abolishes in his flesh the enmity. He is not identified simply as a Jew or a Gentile. He's not simply God. He's not simply man. He in some way overcomes the law and commandments, the ordinances that contains this hostility, Paul says, so that in himself might make the two into one new man. Christ is a new kind of humanity. Or he is humanity as it was meant to be establishing peace. There is a form of knowing, a form of humanity built upon antagonism, violence, struggle. He reconciles them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. You know, what dies on the cross? The enmity, the hostility, the violence. The law, Paul says, is nailed to the cross. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and to you who were near. So that's no longer a division either. And so Paul describes this religious, this psychological dialectic. It's the reification of law, the reification of Jewishness. He does the same thing with sexuality that there is no longer male nor female you know that's a way of doing identity he pictures a sociological you know slave and free he says we no longer do identity in that fashion but he says there is neither jew nor greek in galatians 3:28 there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female You're all one in Christ. I don't think he's saying these identities or these modes are simply obliterated. But that's no longer the way we do identity. So there's identity through difference. But actually I think there is a reduction. You know the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's really one tree isn't it? And I think that there is identity through difference and then there's identity through sameness. Maybe we equate this with Eastern forms of monism or pantheism. But to characterize the two forms of thought as Eastern and Western, I think maybe to miss that the identity through difference implies sameness. That is, it all reduces to the same thing. Just as with a good dependent on an evil, well, really, it's the evil that's definitive. So, too, identity between life and death well it really is death that becomes the controlling factor the reality is that you know we may emphasize difference or we may emphasize sameness but the system the two are interdependent and always found together you know this is the way that one biblical scholar depicts the undifferentiated violence which gripped the generation of noah That is, there's no differentiation. There's indistinctness. And the universal destruction is just kind of the culmination of all-out violence. The sameness of the knowledge of good and evil melds into one thing. And maybe we could picture the story of Scripture as the resistance to this. You know, Noah is called out of this sameness. He's distinct. Abraham is called out. Moses is called down. The Jewish law is continually trying to create distinctions. And there is the continual slide into idolatry, intermarriage, sexual and religious indifference. And that's the story of the Bible. On the other hand, this differentiation, you know, turned into absolute difference, which is where I think we're at in the second temple period, maybe the period that is attached to pharisaical religion, that the absolute distinctions of Judaism in its depiction of God, you know, oh, he's become totally unapproachable. But this seems to be the final preparation for who the Messiah is. They have a clear idea of God's transcendence in uh, Judaism, and the New Testament depiction of Jesus as the God man. You know that's the story. Especially told in the Gospel of John. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the Ego amy He is the I am that I am. He is ultimately the peace. That brings together God and man. And this alternative way of knowing, really, that's what Christ is saying, is an alternative understanding that we do away with knowing in a human fashion through difference or sameness, but Christ is the God-man who is a new order of truth. Now, can we describe this? And the rest of this is a gamble. But hold with me here, I'm going to, to just try to describe what this means. And I think that this is part of what happens in church history. We know one thing, Christ is God and Christ is man. And of course in the history of the church, the tendency is to either focus on the humanity of Christ and neglect the deity... Or to focus on the deity of Christ and neglect the humanity. And so this is the, you know, the councils are continually fighting these heresies. And so we have the Council of Chalcedon. And it makes a bold statement about Christ that I think we can agree with. It may not be explanation, but here is, I I think it's something we have to acknowledge that Christ is of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. He's recognized in two natures. He is both human and divine. But without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. You know, if we think about the antagonism, the confusion, the division, the separation, that's undone in Christ. There's no separation between... God and man, between Jew and Gentile, between male and female. But who Christ is, is not parted or separated into two persons. In his personhood, he is begotten God, the Word. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the God-man. And I think this is part of what Christ means when he's talking about that he is the way, the truth. And so to maintain, you know, the picture is maintaining the difference of two natures combined in one person. This is a hard thought to think. Avoiding both difference of persons, there's a single unified person that is Christ, yet maintaining difference of natures. He's truly God. He's truly human. But without confusion. And so the formula cannot be maintained, I think, other than on Christ, that Christ poses a new possibility for us. Knowing Christ entails a new understanding, a new order of of knowledge. Knowing Christ is a new order of truth. And of course, in saying new, I don't mean that, oh, here's a brand new way. I'm saying here is an understanding that is new for us, but is the foundation of truth. And we cannot fit this to a Greek frame of knowledge or any human frame of understanding because I think a human understanding continually falls into identity through difference, you know, Jew, Greek, good, evil, or identity through sameness, a kind of monolithic understanding without, maybe we could say it falls into absolute transcendence in which God is unapproachable, or absolute eminence in which we do not see the deity of Christ. Now this isn't just a theoretical problem. But knowing Christ in the way that he is to be known, that is to transform our understanding. To know him rightly is to be unified with him. He is the way. And how we know is determined in this case by who we know. And failing to know rightly I think is to fail in love. Because what we would tend to do is to fall into this kind of antagonistic understanding. So I'm going to turn to an a individual that I think gets this closest. But I think in this, he's describing the New Testament in a way better than we have in Chalcedon, in Nicaea. Maximus the Confessor, who I referenced, He says that the mode of human reason is clouded or veiled. It's misdirected from its telos of knowing God. I think that's the picture of the fall. That's the picture of where we're captured. We're captured in surface appearances, knowing solely by our senses. And what we discover instead of peace is anger, passions, desires, unseemly pleasures. He makes a distinction between knowing polemically, knowing agonistically, as opposed to a true rationality. I think we're still describing rationality, but it's rationality of a different order of truth. One can know through identity and difference, that is agonistically, or one can know Christ. And true rationality, knowing Christ, is no longer going to play the game that we play as humans of difference. You know, oh, absolute difference as that ground of our knowing. Christ unifies what is absolutely transcendent and what is imminent. Not in a new combination of these categories, but here is their very definition God is not merely transcendent, nor is he merely imminent, but what we discover in Christ is he's both. And the very definition of these terms takes up a new meaning in Christ. And so apart from Christ, I think transcendence is really a non-category. It's the equivalent of darkness, of death, of nothingness. If God is a mere negation There is no transcendence according to the transcendence of Christ. God is a mystery, is the equivalent, you know, a pure mystery. I'm not saying God isn't a mystery, but I'm saying he's not a mystery of this type. This negation then, you know, it's sort of like the negation of evil over and against good. This is what Maximus says. As much as he became comprehensible through the fact of his birth... By so much more do we know him. To be incomprehensible. Precisely because of that birth. For he remains hidden. Even after his manifestation. Or to speak more divinely. He remains hidden in his manifestation. For the mystery remains concealed. By Jesus. And can be drawn out by no word. Or mind. Or spoken of. He is Ineffable in a sense, and when conceived, he's unknown. Now, this sounds paradoxical, but is all it's saying is that Christ is the foundation, Christ is the true ground of knowledge, and we cannot reduce Christ to another ground, another foundation. This knowledge is ineffable, not in the sense that nothing or absence serves as the ground of knowing, but you know, all knowing. How do we know? All positive being, it gives itself in Christ and is not apprehended otherwise. Maybe this is just the paradox of, of knowing in general that knowing cannot serve as its own ground. Christ is the foundation, the bedrock, and you cannot dig any further. Christ preserves absolute difference within the singular person he is. He preserves absolute transcendence of God, but it's a transcendence that we know about in his eminence. This is a new order of transcendence. It's a new order of reason. It's a new order of truth, bringing together what is radically separate. And bringing it together in this, I think the Chalcedonian formula has it, without difference, without separation, without distinction. As Maximus puts it, Thus, though he was beyond being, he came into being, fashioning within nature a new origin of creation and a different mode of birth. For he was conceived, having become the seed of his own flesh. And he was born, having become the seal of the virginity of the one who bore him showing that in her case, mutually contradictory things can truly come together. For she herself is both virgin and mother, innovating nature by a coincidence of opposites, since virginity and childbearing are opposites. And no one would have been able to imagine their natural combination. And I think that's true here of transcendence and eminence. He says therefore the virgin is truly Theotokos for in a manner beyond nature as if by seed she conceived and gave birth to the word who is beyond being. Since the mother of the one who was sown and conceived is properly she who gave him birth. That's the paradox of the virgin birth but that's the paradox of the incarnation. Only one beyond being One not controlled by being. Could fashion being. Providing the seed for his own flesh. Preserving the virginity of his own mother. And making her who is subject to his being. The being of Christ. But giving birth to the one beyond being. In other words we've passed beyond the normal parameters of understanding. We've entered into a new arena of truth. In a manner beyond us, the word beyond being truly assumed being and joined together the transcendent negation and affirmation. Now this is who we are. You know? It's not as if humanity has this existence apart from the possibility of the reality found in Christ because this informs us about our own essence. Just as he is the ground of his own humanity, he is the ground of all humanity. And this is made known in who he is. That is, who Christ is, is an explanation of who we are. In all that he did, he confirmed the presence of the one deity through the other, humanity. And he is truly both. And we are made for deity and humanity. We are made to participate in who God is. And the conjunction of these was beyond what is possible. But he for whom nothing is impossible became their true union. He was the hypostasis. You know, the bringing together. In no way acting through one of the natures in separation from the other. And so, the temptation in church history, the temptation in our understanding of Christ is to relinquish the absoluteness of his transcendence. We don't relinquish that. Or to make this absolute negation itself part of some sort of dialectical understanding. And he says, you know, what, what you would end up with is, oh, you take transcendence and eminence and you come up with a new combination in Christ. It's, no, that's not what's happening. That we arrive at some middle ground. No, it preserves God's transcendence through the eminence of Christ. There's no dialectic between these two things. It's not on the order of a Hegelian dialectic. And Hegel is interesting. He reads Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, and he says, oh good, now we can think. Now we have cognition. As if there's only one form of knowing. And I think what he misses is the form of knowing that we have in Christ. What is absolute remains absolute in the revelation and reality of Jesus. He is the way. He is truth itself. And apart from him, there is no access to the Father.
0: dot org